So as Rebecca said, I'm Carly, and for most of you that do not know me, I'm an open book, but I'm also an overshare, so I'm going to try to make this concise. I'm 24 years old, and I grew up in small town Iowa, and I'm the baby of six kids, and yes, I was spoiled. Um, and I graduated from the University of Iowa two years ago, and I'm going on my third year of ministry with the Salt Company. I am passionate about the gospel, but my main job is to <clears throat> disciple the leaders of Salt Company and to oversee the women's <coughs> side of our leadership and discipleship. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. And so I'm anywhere from coffee shop conversations to everything ball or anything in between to connect with the college students. And I basically get to be a college student without the homework, but add on adult responsibilities like changing the oil and paying bills. I'm also going to try to pass as a college student for as long as I can, eating up every compliment of my youth. But when I'm not working, I enjoy slow mornings with a good cup of coffee and being the last person on the dance floor at weddings or shopping at TJ Maxx. <laughs> so let's begin with the real reason why we're here to study God's Word. So we've been studying through James this summer, and I hope that you've been enjoying the gentle butt kicking or the genuine love tap from James. And I pray that you've been called to action in a practical way challenging the way that you live and growing in your love of God and resting more in his grace as you grow in your knowledge of him. And so last week we left off in James 3 talking about peace and chaos and the power of the tongue and then discerning between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. So earthly wisdom consists of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which leads to disorder. While heavenly wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, which leads to a harvest of righteousness. So chapter 4 flows directly from this thought. We know that men's heart is full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So James begins with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Well, isn't this the question we're all asking? What is causing those things? And so what causes the fights among you with your marriage, with your roommates, with your coworkers? So I'm going to pause here, and I'm going to color in a little bit more of my story by briefly sharing about my personality. So if any of you have ever taken the Myers-Briggs, you know that you get four letters to describe who you are. And mine are ESFJ. This means, and I, would affirm, <laughs> yes, and I would affirm that I'm outgoing, I'm empathetic, and I'm good at connecting with others. But one of my many downsides is that I tend to be inflexible or stubborn. And so this is proven true a couple weeks ago as I'm preparing to go to a wedding with some of my friends and we're talking about plans to ride together. And I notified them to meet at such and such a time which was about like an hour before the wedding even began. But now see, when I believe something to be true, I cannot easily be swayed into thinking something else. And so I was confident that there would be a lot of traffic on 380 on a Friday night on the way to the wedding, 
and I was sh- I wanted to be on time to be respectful. So before we left, I began to get flack about my promptness, and as we hit the road, it, you know, we start grumbling, leading to mild, minor quarreling. Needless to say, we arrived 40 minutes early. <laughs> and I am both humbled and shocked as I share with them how I was wrong. So now, regardless what the cause was of that minor quarrel, whether it was my pride or my reputation or my stubbornness, let's just take a look at the underlying issue of all of our fights and quarrels. Let's step aside for a moment, looking beyond the problem and the remedy, and let's look under the surface to see the origin of our fights. So James proposes an answer with a rhetorical question which elicits an affirmative reply, beginning in the second half of verse one. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you not know, or you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So a few things are happening here. James convicts his audience of murder. But let's take a closer look. Is this literal? Was the intended intended audience guilty of murder? Likely here the word kill is being used as a metaphor for hate. So we can compare this conviction with Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, murder is being angry with your brother, even anger in your heart. So coming back to James, he next addresses their issue with prayer and teaches them a lesson on how to pray. He notifies them that the failure lies with man and his asking and not God with his response. As a believer, if you're asking anything in his name, he will honor your request according to his will. So our request must honor his name and further his kingdom. Do your prayers follow this prompt? First, are you conversing with God in prayer? Are your requests seeking your honor and your fame or his? Another thing we need to take note of in this portion of scripture is the word passion and desire, which we remember from last week, our earthly desires can create chaos or disorder. Then looking deeper into the word desire, we see that it can also be translated as lust or covet, meaning a deep longing or desiring earnestly. And secondly, noting that he uses the words in the plural form, In our lives, there isn't just one thing that begs for our attention, our love or desire, but it's many things. This question, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, insinuates that man chooses worldly pleasures contrary to the will of God. In time, we become slaves to the sinful desires of our hearts, separating us from God. What James is saying here is the reason behind your problems is your heart. You're going after the wrong things. You're in love with the wrong things. Covetousness and selfishness are insults to God. Take a look at your heart. What are your desires? What do you love? What are you asking for? What are you passionate about? Is it a new pair of shoes? Or the best vacation? 
the kitchen of your dreams? Let's take a, one step further. What about perfectionism? Beauty, popularity. Have you wanted these lesser things more than you should when we should be longing for the kingdom of God? So here lies our problem in verse 4. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we're choosing friendship with the world over friendship with God. We're self-reliant, we're self-seeking, with problems that are flowing deep within our heart. We're asking for things that we do not need, and we're selling them on our passions. And so the literal translation of verse 4 says, You adulteresses. So that means returning again and again and again to our sin. This phrase not only refers to adultery in a sexual sense against a husband, but adulterous people to God. This is the same rebuke God gave to the Israelites. This phrase, you adulterous people, refers to God as husband and Israel as the unfaithful wife. This is the context in which the original audience would have been familiar with. God tells, um, for example, the story of Hosea that they knew very well, that God tells Hosea to go and take a wife of unfaithfulness and children of unfaithfulness, and because the land is guilty of adultery, departing from the Lord. And then he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity meaning, meaning hostility, unfriendliness, or opposition. So being friends with the world is to be hostile to God. Friendship with the world is to hate God. If anyone is a friend of the world, he makes himself an enemy of God. A worldly person loves himself and his pleasures of the world, but we, we're double-minded. We think that we can like both God and the world. We want to be the best host, satisfying the taste buds of every guest, and then be friends with God. We want to be the most beautiful, have the most beautiful profile picture displaying all of our best attributes and be friends with God. And we want to buy the latest iPad, iPhone, iWatch, staying up with the times, and be friends with God. But this will not work because you cannot serve two masters. And it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy gifts of this world like great vacations to Puerto Rico and deep relationships with your best friends. But it means that these things don't control you. So what is competing with your heart for God? What is competing with God for your love? Going after these things means going away from God. You cannot serve your selfish ambitions and remain loyal to God. So I, I speak from experience when I tell you that it just won't work. And so for me, the world has fabricated and magnified the idea of marriage and from a young age, I bought into this ideology and I wanted a piece of that cake. This life is about happiness with another person, but not just a person, your dream person. You can have the wedding of your dreams if you play your cards right. And if you do this, you'll be successful, you'll have the best house, 
renovated and decorated by Joanna Gaines herself. <laughs> you will have beautiful, well-behaved children. You'll drive the nicest car, and you'll live happily ever after. So starting with my first boyfriend in the eighth grade, I began to give away a little bit of my heart. Being new to the game, it started little by little, first sacrificing my time with my girlfriends and then spending most of my time with him and spending my efforts and affections on him. But I came up dry. So I tried again and again, and each time leading me into deeper disappointment and frustration. No man was exactly what I dreamed of or envisioned, and I, they just couldn't live up to the standards that I had set for them. So time and time again, I'm being reminded of just how unsatisfied I was by spending my love on other things. So this past week, my sister called me, and I'm sharing with her about what I'm studying in James and how I'm being instructed. And um, I was telling her that I'm begging God to show me what I loved more than him and what I desired. And the reason I had to beg him to show me is because I am too familiar with it. I do it too often. And my sister began to encourage me and tell me she's proud of me for like being satisfied in the Lord. And then it hit me. Even though I'm not in a relationship, I still tell my, sell my time, my thoughts, and ideas on being fully satisfied in a marriage, as if I'm missing out. I allow my dreams, ambition, and ambitions of marriage to control me at times thinking about it day in and day out. So I confess to her that there's a lot of days that my thoughts are not sold on God and his kingdom, but on selfish ambitions and jealousy. So what is God's reaction to my adultery, to your adultery? God tolerates no friendship with the world. He is a jealous God. Verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God created us to be close to him, and he is not okay with us selling our passions on other things. You, believer, have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, and your desires, they're now becoming his desires. And do you think that you can be a temple of the living God and still maintain a friendship with the world? So moving on to verse 6, it says, But he gives more grace. This is the gospel puzzle piece. The first good news we get in James is that we have a jealous God who fiercely seeks us out with a passionate love. And if that's not enough, we have a second good news, which is God's response to our unfaithfulness is grace. To the people who cheat on him, he runs to with open arms, ready to shower them with mercy. So I don't know about you, but this reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Picture this with me. A story of a father and two sons. The younger son, he comes to the father, and he foolishly demands his inheritance and then flees the country. Oh, what this father must have felt. The young man ends up spending all that he has. And for a while, he attempts to get by during a time of famine, eating the slop with the pigs. And day after day, when his belly is hungry, 
He's reminded of what he's done. Could you imagine? So finally, after coming to his senses, he wills himself to return to his father and plead with him to be paid as a servant so that he can survive. So he devises a plan and a speech. Now his plan is to make the trek back to his father's house, if he can make it, alive. One thing to remember, and I'm sure was flooding through the son's thoughts, what if even the greatest repentance plan, his father then shuns him? But while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and is filled with compassion. The father runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him before the son can even utter one word. The key moment here is the father's embrace. The son then offers his apology and seeks forgiveness, to which the father responds with a celebration. His father throws the biggest party, saying, My son who was lost is now found. But the real change in the prodigal is both in his status and his heart, which happens in the embrace of his father. That's where repentance occurs. Imagine yourself in those arms. You may have been sorry before, but now you loathe yourself. You can't escape his love. You had thought you stank as you found yourself eating among the pigs, but now you feel the stench to your core. Yet, you're held close. You had composed a repentant speech. Now your awareness of your sin overwhelms you. But you're enfolded in grace. The parable of the prodigal son is one of the greatest love stories ever told. The only entry requirement into God's kingdom is humility and repentance. This story is a picture of how God views us and how we must choose to repent and turn to him. This is God's very response to us in verse 6, saying he gives more grace. This truth is amazing. Who could fathom such a relationship? Our goal in this life is not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and attempt to be more faithful, to get up early, to pray, to read our Bibles more, but it's to daily rely on the finished work of Christ. James is telling these people, You are messed up. But God's grace is greater than your sin. We mu- what must our response be then to his grace? James offers a preposition, starting in the second half of verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So first and foremost, to be a recipient of grace, we need humility. God opposes the proud because the proud oppose God. They try to make themselves God. How grace then becomes ours? Submission to God. How must we deal with our pride then? Is by submission or obedience, which is willfully placing oneself under the authority of someone to show respect. Humility is the recognition of your full dependence on God. James continues his preposition to our response of God's grace in verse 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So just like road signs on the highway directing you safely to your destination, James provides a concise, colorful, and direct instruction on how to resist the devil in these last four verses. James, James's signs to us indicate that we need to draw near to God. There needs to be an outward cleansing. We need to purify our hearts, being broken and contrite in spirit, and humble. So what does this look like? James is calling to his audience sinners and double-minded and to us one and the same. He's not saying work hard, do better, stop sinning. But he's calling us to repent. This is repentance in light of the gospel, to stop and to turn. No matter where you are at, we are to turn to God and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking at him wherever you are, in understanding there is nothing, there's nothing you could do to get where he is. God, in his mercy, came to us and continues to pursue us. In the same way the prodigal was embraced by his father, we are embraced daily by Jesus himself. The way we become spiritually clean is repentance. Like the Old Testament prophet calling the people to repentance by having them grieve over their sins, James instructs the same. Repentance and grief, they go together. Repentance means that death has occurred in our lives. We grieve because our sins against God and others, producing a godly sorrow. From 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Similarly, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. They are destroyed over the sin in their life, and it makes them grieve. Sisters, our sin must break our heart. You will never, never turn from a sin that you do not hate. So humble yourself. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, so we must humble ourselves. And James is saying, you're a people of problems with your tongues. You're showing partiality. And you have problems in your prayer life. And despite your estranged desires and failures, there's a God. And he is yearning for you. Like the son who's seen from far off and pursued, there's grace for you. Come home. Just stop and turn. He came to us and he took our punishment all we have to do is an about face to the finished work of Christ. Verse 10 reminds us that the restoring work is now God's work. He will restore you and exalt you. Turn to him in humility. We don't have to prove our righteousness. Humble yourselves, bow to him, and he will run to you and call you his daughter. The way that we get to the throne is by going to the cross. Don't rely on your efforts, but on the finished work of Christ. So what he's painting for us is that nearness to God is just repentance away. 
So in light of verse 6, despite the messiness of your heart, of my heart, of our failed attempts, God desires you. So we must humble ourselves with the disgust of our sin, and He will exalt you. He will lift you up. And so James doesn't stop here. He moves on to verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James echoes the teaching from James from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. So James' tone changes remarkably, remarkably in this section from calling us sinners and double-minded to now calling us brothers. And so James pokes deeper into their words, speaking evil or slander against one another, which is issued from the heart from one who fails to consider others above himself. For such speech is from the devil and will eventually lead to destruction among the fellowship of their community. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it as a judge. Instead of judging our neighbors, what shall we do but love them? Have you made yourself to be the substitute judge? So maybe you don't actually breathe the judgment to another person, But what would your thoughts convey if they were displayed for everyone else to see? I know that mine would not measure up. We act out of bitter envy and jealousy, causing us to slander our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are in no position to judge because we ourselves are in need of the very mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. James concludes with one final instruction in verses 13 through 17. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sisters, we make plans and talk as if if we we are the masters of this life and as as if God doesn't exist. This is foolishness. James identifies this in his audience and provides an example saying, today or tomorrow you'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. They talk about the future with absolute certainty, as if they have control over it. Do you do this? Do you talk through your daily schedule or your weekly schedule as if it's your way or the highway? Continuing on in verse 15, the will of God must not be a lofty phrase that we just throw on our plans. But James teaches of God's sovereignty in our lives and to acknowledge our submission to him. Instead of ignoring God in our daily lives, we must place him first. As children of God, we must know and trust we are secure in the protective care of our Heavenly Father. Continuing in verse 16, he demonstrates that boasting, 
is a form of pride. The businessmen were boasting in their accomplishments and not the provision of God. And this is evil. As stated in the homework, we must meditate on the characteristics of God to keep us from such boasting. In our boasting, we plan for ourselves how we think that we can flourish. Though we make great plans with the best best wisdom that we have to offer, we must hold our plans with an open hand. So ending then in verse 17, he's now speaking not only to the businessmen, but to the entire audience, and James warns against the sin of omission, which happens when we ignore God, and then we make a plan, and the plan is successful, and then we brag about our accomplishments. Instead, we have been taught how to obey and how to serve God, and if we neglect this, for us, it is sin. So what do we do with all of this. We must know and trust that friendship with God is better than friendship with the world. We must turn in humility to repentance and rest in God's embrace of grace. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much that we get to come as broken people into the presence of a holy God day in and day out. God, thank you that you have restored us and you are continuing to restore us to yourself as an unfaithful people. God, thank you for your love for each of us, that you chose us before the foundation of the world to be adopted as daughters. God, I pray that you would continue to instruct our minds and our hearts so that our hands may look different, that our actions look different than the rest of the world. God, would we never choose lesser things compared to you? And God, thank you that your response to us is not to leave us in our disparity, but is to recklessly pursue us with your love, to shower us with your mercy. God, would we be reminded daily of that gospel message that we do not have to do better, to try better, to be better, but that we can rest in your grace. Thank you, God, for who you are. Continue to shape us and grow us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.